We still do seven NUFC Matters show a week for free. But if you want to help support NUFC Matters, then there are a few ways of doing it. Hit the like button on each live broadcast and video. This helps the channel grow. Hit the subscribe button and select the all notifications bell so you don't miss a single show. If you want to help us financially, then you can join the channel using this button with the membership starting at $1.99 a month. Or you can drop us a donation in the chat using a super sticker. We're also looking for sponsors. If you'd like your brand advertised on the flies for the show and featured during the ad break, then email john at nufcmatters.com to arrange today. To NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. Delighted to welcome Ben Jacobs back to the show. You've been globetrotting, Ben. <laughs> I have been globetrotting. Even though people will be watching this off the window shut, we're right in the thick of the window. And I've been with Chelsea and Newcastle on pre-season tours in America. And then I went to Saudi Arabia as well. Now, I've got to ask you about that. Saudi Arabia, Ben Jacobs going to Saudi Arabia. I know you've <laughs> probably been before. What, what, you know, what, what was it like for you going across there? What was, what was your mission in Saudi yeah, I think that those that followed me during the Newcastle takeover might be joking that I'd be off to Qatar, not Saudi Arabia. But I was out living in the Middle East for seven years. So I've been to Saudi Arabia before. It's always fun and interesting going back. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is just because it changes so quickly. It was the same with Dubai between kind of 2008 after the crash all the way through to now. So I was in Demam first, which is probably less visited. And that's where Stephen Gerrard is managing a club called Al-Itifak. It's a coastal town. It's not too far from Bahrain. Then I went to Jeddah and Riyadh, which are the two big cities. And Newcastle have obviously visited Riyadh before too. And there's an old part of Riyadh and a new part of Riyadh. It's very modern. It's friendly. I think the thing that strikes me, along with the football culture, is just that it's such a young population and because of the headlines around Saudi Arabia, rightly in many cases and wrongly, as far as some Newcastle fans will argue from a football perspective, but there's so much scrutiny on the country, both how it's evolving and all of the bad stuff. And I'm not just talking about sports washing. We should mention the human rights and all of the other things that make the news cycles. And my perspective has always been you don't get a true sense unless you visit as well, because that's part of the puzzle and the story. You have to understand all levels, all sides, and do a lot of listening as well. And the thing that struck me is just that there's a lot of young Saudis that want to rewrite the narrative. So you can be sitting in a cafe or on a plane, and someone will just come and speak to you, and they'll want to quickly exchange WhatsApp or Snapchat, which is the big thing out there. I don't have a Snapchat account, but I think if I go back regularly, 
I'll need one because that's really popular in Saudi Arabia. And the amount of people that want to change your mind, the amount of people that want to take you out for a coffee, the amount of strangers basically that want to befriend you and show off their city in a positive light. And I think if I came up to you, maybe not in Newcastle because you're a friendly bunch, but if I came up to someone in London, complete stranger, sitting next to them on the tube, and I said, you're not from London, and within five seconds said, take my number, I'll take you out for a coffee. I think people would be quite alarmed by that because it's just not the mentality in London to be approaching random strangers, especially not if you're Ben Jacobs and asking them for coffee. But that is the Saudi mentality, the hospitality, the welcoming I received, even as a complete stranger, was quite overwhelming. And this, I think, is the new aspect of Saudi Arabia. They are on a push to showcase the country in a different light. And football is, of course, a part of that. So it was very enjoyable. And then Jeddah, I've been to before. I really like Al Ittihad, one of the big clubs there. They're defending Saudi champions. And we're going to hear more about Jeddah over the course of the next year or so because they're the hosts for the Club World Cup in 2023. So let's wait and see how sort of Newcastle fit into the sports vision and whether or not the club in any way, branding wise, commercially speaking, or just in terms of headlines and creating a buzz, play into that kind of Club World Cup and what the Saudi Pro League are doing. But the dealmakers have kind of been clear to me when I've asked them that question. You have Newcastle PIF, you have Saudi Pro League PIF, and there isn't much crossover. So it's very easy to sort of say PIF might deal with PIF and it's the same people. And yes, it is the same company, but it's so big PIF that there really isn't much overlap in terms of personnel although people like to, of course, make those connections in the case of the Alan St. Maximum deal to Al-Ali. How's ESM doing out there? Not too much to write home about at the moment because it's early stages. I think that as far as ASM is concerned, it's going to take a little bit of time. Al-Ali are stocked, by the way. I mean, they've got an incredible lineup now. Riyad Mahrez is, of course, a teammate but with ASM and any new signing, you have to get used to the climate, actually, rather than the culture. I think the culture part is easier for a footballer in some ways because football is just football. The cultural aspect is just training is late, the games are late. So you're not going to have this wake up early morning type mentality where you're at training for 8am. So footballers are going to have to adjust their body clock a little bit. But climate's an anomaly because usually the climate gets a bad rap in the Middle East. We saw this with the World Cup and it's absolutely fine. But it's just this time of year where the two worst months are now. So you are playing games in 35, 40 degree heat. And unlike in Qatar, not all of the stadiums are air conditioned. So it can be a little bit problematic. But Al Ali are doing well at the moment. They are second in the Saudi Pro League. They've played for 1 4. Goals are still a little bit of a problem for them, especially compared to Al Ittihad, who at the time we're recording this, it may change over the coming days because Al Ittihad have got a big game against Al Hilal. It's known, believe it or not, as the Saudi Classico. So by the time people are watching this, that game will have finished. But at the moment, Al Ittihad are scoring goals and they've not conceded one, whereas Al Ali have won all of their four games, but I think they've only scored nine goals. So ASM is playing. 
And it's a front line with Riyad Mahrez on the other side and Bobby Firmino leading the line. And he was involved in a 2-0 victory over, I think it was Altai last time out. And then the previous game, it was a late winner needed by Frank Kessie, I believe, in injury time in a 1-0 victory. So I think that ASM still needs to get going and try and get on the score sheet and contribute as much as possible. But we have to be patient, like I say, because it's really quite tough to arrive in Saudi Arabia, play in a non-air-conditioned stadium, kick off at nine at night, and it be 35, 40 degrees. Whereas once we get into October, the weather will be perfect for football. And that's when I think a lot of the foreign signings will start to excel. You're muted, I think, Steve. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. I think I'm the one that should be muted, but you're the one <laughs> muted on this occasion. There's a bit of background noise. I didn't want it to disturb you because you were on a roll. The uh, Continuing on the Saudi theme, um, I'm not sure whether you're aware of this or not, but NUFC fans against sports washing, they're a, they're a group that was set up in the wake of the takeover. Uh, they've obviously campaigned against sports washing and they're urging city leaders to speak out ahead of the two mm. fixtures at St. James's Park, which of course involve the Saudi Arabian national team, which will be in this uh, Premier League break that we have, the international break. Um, in amongst all of this, Saudi human rights activist Lena Al-Hatloul is visiting the city next week and she's going to be addressing a public meeting held by this group at the Northern Stage Theatre. Now, obviously, they're wanting, you know, councillors to speak out. We had Ian Murder, well-respected journalist on the uh, on the show uh, the other night. Um, you know, he's a Newcastle fan. He's conflicted by Saudi ownership. We don't you know, we don't stop people coming on this show and, 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 and giving their opinion. And that's what it's all about. Um, but essentially, they've urged the council to support the calls for the two upcoming fixtures at St. James's Park against Costa Rica and South Korea to be cancelled. They say it's inappropriate for the two fixtures to go ahead. And, and obviously, following the publication of a recent Human Rights Watch report, uh, which details allegations, it has to be said, of Saudi border guards killing hundreds of Ethiopian migrants at the Saudi border with Yemen. So this really is something which I think we all knew as Newcastle fans, um, both pro and those who were against Saudi ownership, knew would never go away. It's always going to come around. This event, which is taking place 5th of September at the Northern Stage, um, you know, they're... they're entirely you know within their rights to put this on well i mean it's never it's never going to go away but is there anything that we can do is there is there any way that we can try and find some some middle ground with these kind of people you know do, you know or, or should you know you, obviously it's a free it's a you know, democratic free world in in england is there anything that we can do maybe to to learn more is there anything the club can do more is there anything pif can do more that can mm. they can help appease these kind of things because i i always do worry when these things when these things are announced i, I know that most newcastle fans are just concentrated on the football but it's something that just won't go away and, and i guess you would say rightly so yeah i think that we can't be naive in all of this. You have Newcastle United. They're in the Champions League. That's great. Brilliant club, brilliant fans. And it's a well-run club at the moment. And then you have the wider Saudi Arabian picture. And until either PIF and the Premier League make public these legally binding assurances of separation or until Yasser Al-Rumian speaks to the media, then the direct association between wider Saudi Arabia and Newcastle is not going to go away. 
And it works both ways. Sport can be a force for good. Sport can be a force for bonding and unity. But it's also going to be used because it creates headlines as a means of continuing to talk about all of these topics. And the sad thing in all of this is just that if countries and leaders were transparent with the media and answered questions and didn't shy away, then we would look very silly only using Newcastle or a Saudi Arabian football team's visit to Newcastle as the excuse to ask the questions. But the reality of the situation is that if, as some Newcastle fans would argue, the appropriate time to ask Saudi Arabia about human rights is to a government minister at a government event, then if that access is granted, the media would be able to do so. But obviously for UK media, the window that sport provides has some overlap because Yasser Arumian is a close aide of Mohammed bin Salman. So it's natural and normal that UK media, human rights activists, lobbyists would sort of gather around sports because it's soft power, but it's also a much easier window for media to actually get in front of people or use the sport as an opportunity to protest. And I understand why, because if you are anti-Saudi Arabia's regime and you see the Newcastle project or Saudi Arabia playing a game at St. James's Park as a means of soft power, then the counter argument of it's football, leave Newcastle, leave Saudi, leave St. James's Park, leave the footballers alone. That argument doesn't make sense because leaving it alone is letting the soft power through sport happen, which is why those that are against the Saudi Arabia regime, their record in human rights, their record of inclusivity, will use this as an opportunity. And again, the only way that that's going to change is if the actual people that can answer these questions and can ultimately provide a clear and transparent perspective about Saudi Arabia's past, but also Saudi Arabia's future, if they make themselves available and I've said this many times, I want to be greedy. I want that interview. But if it's not to me, then speak to a lobbyist in a private meeting or speak to the fan base if you're Newcastle United. And I think if that's done, then when it keeps coming up, we can keep turning back to the fact that we did have that opportunity to have the conversation in a frank and open and honest way. And then you can look quite silly as a journalist if you keep asking the same question over and over and over again because you've had the answer. We might not agree with the answer, but at least we got to ask the question. Right now, we don't always get to ask the question. And then at the same time, I do think that it's fair for everyone to have an opinion. So if I was a Newcastle fan, perhaps I would be frustrated that my club is constantly being linked to the wider Saudi picture. But that is unfortunately just the nature of these owners. And again, I come back to what I said before. If the Premier League come out and publish the legally binding assurances and show everyone transparently and categorically why there is no direct link between government and PIF in the context of Newcastle, then again, as journalists, we have that bit of information. So does the wider public. And if we buy it and it makes sense, then you can move on a little bit. And obviously this particular visit is not about Newcastle. It's just the fact that the owners of Newcastle have put up St. James's Park. And I don't think that we can call that out because 
any owner of any football club can use their stadium for business and for purposes that they see fit. And some will say that is sports washing because when would the Saudi Arabian football team come to St. James's Park if they were not owned by Saudi Arabia? But that's the benefit of being an owner. The Chelsea owners had a great relationship with Shakhtar Donetsk off the back of, ironically, I suppose, a Russian billionaire in Roman Abramovich. And they used that to stage the game for Ukraine. Spurs had a great relationship with Shakhtar Donetsk. They used that to stage a friendly against Shakhtar Donetsk, where I think Harry Kane scored four goals before he departed. So a football owner can't say, I'm not going to try and use my contact. A football owner from Saudi Arabia is not going to say, I'm worried about using my contacts to do something that promotes the Saudi national team. Because what if there's backlash? Because those owners believe that Saudi Arabia is moving in the right direction. And shock horror, that's because they are tied to the government, even if legally we want to delve back into those assurances that were given. So I'm for listening. I'm for speech. I'm for everyone giving their side in a respectful manner. I'm for scrutiny over Saudi Arabia's past, but I'm also for shedding a light on what they're trying to do in the future. And it doesn't have to be only sports a big cover up for Saudi Arabia's horrific past. It can be Saudi Arabia's had a terrible past, but they are also trying to do something positive in the future. And we have to balance those two, which is why I visit Saudi Arabia, which is why I try and listen to all sides. And I don't believe anything horrific from the past should just be rewritten. And I've made that clear repeatedly. I don't believe we should just go, hooray, Newcastle are in the Champions League, Saudi Arabia and its ownership and its government are great. Because we all know that the track record is horrific. But... That doesn't mean in a new era, you can't also try and improve things. So if the improvement is genuine, then ultimately we need to say that. And to know if it's genuine, we need to listen to the naysayers. We need to listen to the critics. We need to listen to the government. We need to listen to the locals. We need to listen to men and women and try and get a frank and honest appraisal of if this is just sports washing or if there is genuine progress being made. And that, again, is why visiting is really important. So it's never going to go away from Newcastle. Sometimes it will feel unfair. Sometimes it will feel staged. Sometimes it will feel genuine. But I would just encourage fans to push for transparency in all areas, from their football club and the ownership to come out and speak, from government, from activists and lobbyists. Hear people out because your mind might be changed in some capacity. And if it isn't, and then you've educated yourself, then you've sort of vindicated your own opinion and your own position. I think too often, particularly on social media, I just get an opinion. And you think, how have you formulated that opinion so quickly? Because it's incredibly complicated, which is why I try and give these longer answers in this context. It's unthinkably complicated. So how have you got an opinion so quickly? And it's because people just want to fix themselves with this perspective of the owners of Newcastle can do nothing wrong. There's clearly transparency and there's clearly separation and stop bashing Newcastle. And I get that because it's your football club, but educate yourself. And if you still come to exactly the same opinion, then fine. But it will take time to educate yourself. So I would encourage everyone to listen to, even if it 
annoys some fans, hear all sides, because you might be surprised, you might be stunned, and then see what your opinion is. And if your opinion lands on the side of maybe there is something untoward here, maybe there is something worth investigating, that doesn't take away from the fact that Newcastle is still in the Champions League and you can love your club and you can love your city. But let's try not to be close-minded about it where because you're a Newcastle fan, you just decide Saudi Arabia can do no wrong. And similarly, let's not go to the other extreme and just decide that because Saudi Arabia have done things wrong in the past, there's no room for improvement. And if we have a frank and honest conversation about it and are respectful to all sides, then hopefully over the course of time, reality will simply show us whether Saudi Arabia are improving. And fans are not stupid because if time passes and we don't see improvement on inclusion in Saudi Arabia, improvement on human rights in Saudi Arabia, if none of that materialises, then slowly but surely Newcastle United fans will realise that's the case. So I think that my answer is long, but the solution is simple. Be respectful, listen, and try to educate yourselves. And then hopefully everyone will be in a position where they're better off for that. Okay, it was worth you know asking you that. We've we've been through this many many times on this platform with you, Ben. But uh, it's always good to have a refresher. And um, like I say on NUFC matters, um, we we always like to put both sides across because I do think it's very important when, um, especially with with the Saudi ownership. Let's talk football because it's a few weeks since I had Rion. I've, I've been on holiday. You've been on holiday. Uh, we've both been very busy, but it's great to get you back on the. You know, the first three games, we knew it was going to be a tough season. Aston Villa uh, at home, we got off to a roaring start. Mm. Uh, we go to the Etihad against Man City. Um, below par performance uh, from the Newcastle, we would expect. Come away with a 1-0 defeat, but there's no shame in that at the Etihad. And then Liverpool, 1-0 up, uh, playing 10 men, 10 minutes to go, and then disaster. Um, Newcastle, Newcastle collapse, um, Nunes Scores two goals, probably not two, scored two better goals than that this season. And uh, Liverpool, you know, smash and grab. That's the best way to describe it because Newcastle should have had the game out of sight. So, first three games, um, what, what, what are you making of the, the Newcastle side that you've seen so far? Yeah, the opening game shows what Newcastle are capable of and what a debut for Tenali. I think he scored after only six minutes and Isaac got a brace. And then when you see Wilson and Barnes both scoring, that's the perfect example of what Newcastle need this season in order to get into the Champions League or better. A new signing hitting the ground running, Isaac continuing the momentum of last season, Wilson with a goal, and we know he's going to be important if he stays fit for the season, and another new signing and Harvey Barnes scoring. So you couldn't have asked for a better start and against a very good Villa side, by the way, as well, which made the victory even more impressive. And that starting lineup is obviously, I think, one of Newcastle's very best, which is interesting because Callum Wilson was only on the bench. We have to see over the course of the season where Barnes slots in because he was on the bench for that game. And even a player like Elliot Anderson could have a bigger role to play as the season goes on. And then we have to also understand whether Dan Byrne is going to keep that left-back spot, especially now Lewis Hall's arrived because he obviously wasn't at the football club when that first game happened. But 
everything was perfect in that game, apart from the DRB goal, of course. No shame in losing 1-0 to Manchester City. But as you say, Newcastle were not at their best in that game. But I was still encouraged to see Eddie Howe stick to the 4-3-3 formation and not really adapt. But there wasn't too much that was fluid or clinical about Newcastle. But I think that Manchester City played their part in that game. And then the Liverpool game was just very disappointing because if you go back towards last season and think of the Nick Pope sending off, then as soon as Virgil van Dijk went, you naturally assume that it would be the opposite, especially because Newcastle were already 1-0 up in the game. But I thought Newcastle a bit complacent. They went into their shell. It looked like they had 10 men for much of the game instead of Liverpool. All credit to Liverpool. Two, as you say, superb finishes by Darwin Nunez. But that's a game where Newcastle had, I think, 20-plus shots on goal, eight-plus shots on target. They played over an hour with a one-man advantage. They had 60% of possession, and they still couldn't win the game, even though they had a 1-0 lead at the time of the sending off. So just a freak-of-nature type result. And I think sometimes that can help you early in the season because now they've got a really tricky away game against Brighton. And let's see if they bounce back. Newcastle was slow to start last season as well. But I think the difference is that this season, the expectation is high. So if they go to Brighton and lose that game, then maybe some of the fan base are going to be starting to wonder whether or not they're going to be lingering around mid-table mediocrity because that would be three defeats on the bounce. So it does add a little bit of pressure ahead of the Brighton game. But I think Newcastle just need to stay calm because they're the kind of team that if they get going and keep fit, then they will find momentum. So I still think that of the three games, the Villa one is the most important because it shows what Newcastle are capable of. I think playing Man City this early in the season was always going to be tough. And, you know, if they'd have beaten Liverpool, which they should have done, then Mm. we'd be sitting here saying, great start to the season, only lost by a goal to Man City. It was away from home, big win against Liverpool, and uh, excellent victory against Aston Villa. But because they lost to Liverpool and it was against 10 men, if they were to lose to Brighton now, it somehow puts an entirely different complexion on the season. But I think Newcastle will be okay because after that Brighton game, they've got Brentford at home. They've got away at Sheffield United. They've got Burnley at home. I think another home game is against Palace. I think they've got Wolves, West Ham away, somewhere in there as well. It's not easy, but it's winnable as well. So up until that Arsenal game on November the 4th, Newcastle have got an opportunity now to put a run together. Yeah, I would agree. You you watched Harvey Barnes at Leicester. He's coming to Newcastle. He's How seems to be alternating him and Anthony Gordon? Anthony Gordon's mm. got the nod. Uh, got to be honest, two completely different players. Um, I think Anthony Gordon's got a bit more um, tenacity about him. He gets stuck in. I think Barnes loves to push forward, loves to score goals. I mean, you know, we saw the best and we've seen the worst. We saw the best against uh, Aston Villa. We, we just, you know, we saw him go for goal instead of squaring it to Wilson against Liverpool, which would have put Newcastle 2-0 up and, you know, game out of sight. So, how do we get the best out of Harvey Barnes is the question I want to ask you, Ben. Yeah, I think that Barnes can play in that position where Anthony Gordon lies. I'm not surprised that Gordon's being given the nod because he had an excellent under-21 Euros for England. But Harvey Barnes, remember, is coming off the back of a breakthrough season for Leicester. So if he doesn't get as much game time, he'll be naturally disappointed because he's earned it based upon last season. And I think he's not only 
earned it, but there's an England factor even as well. As soon as you move to Newcastle United and off the back of the season that Barnes had, you can make an argument that he's in the mix as well. So that's an interesting one to watch over the course of the season. But I think getting the best out of Harvey Barnes is relatively simple because he's quite a versatile player. And on top of that, he's high energy. And not only is he high energy, but he is able to start wide and cut inside. So the best out of Harvey Barnes at Leicester, in my opinion, was actually in a 4-2-3-1, not a 4-3-3, where Barnes had like one obvious focal point. Now, yes, that can be still Alexander Isak or Callum Wilson, but in the 4-2-3-1, you're starting a little bit deeper. And that's where Barnes really excels when he gets a progressive pass, a direct pass. He picks up the ball wide and then has the option to run centrally, run diagonally or stay wide and feed somebody. So if I was Howe, even in a 4-3-3, I'd be encouraging Barnes to drop a little bit deeper and then burst forwards and almost join the midfield at times. But that can lead to a lack of balance. And the way that Newcastle play, they want to get it forwards quickly. They want the fullbacks to bomb forwards. So Barnes has to sort of learn, I think, to play five or six yards further forwards and adapt to a 4-3-3, which might seem a strange thing because every player is comfortable in a 4-3-3. But I think Barnes is at his best when he is in that three in a 4-2-3-1. And at Newcastle, if he's in the Gordon position, then he's obviously almost a wide forward in a 4-3-3. So what is the spacing and what is the dynamic between a Barnes and whoever the central forward is? Are they sort of side by side at times? And if they are, then Barnes has to play quite intricate around the box and find a way of taking little touches and getting ahead of the central focal point. And he was quite good at doing that at Leicester, running with pace, interchanging with someone and then arriving at the right time in the box. So getting the best out of Barnes will be on the counter-attack for Newcastle, uh, but also encouraging him maybe to drop just those few yards deeper and then sort of see where the phase of play takes him. And uh, from Gordon's point of view, it's a little bit different because I would classify Gordon... Uh, as far more comfortable as a forward as well as a winger, whereas I would sort of call Barnes more uh, a wide, creative-minded player. So they're not like-for-like profiles. And I think that as a result, Eddie Howe's just going to have to determine the chemistry as to within his formation, which one he wants to go with. But from a selfish point of view, I hope it's Barnes, because if Barnes isn't starting regularly for Newcastle, then it's a step back from last season where he got into double figures as far as Premier League goals are concerned. Mm. I mean, which forward do you think he would, would play best with? You're saying play alongside the forward. I mean, Isaac's got the nod at the start of the season, um, you know, and he's, what, 15 Premier League games, 12 goals. Uh, but, you know, Callum Wilson had a wonderful run. And, you know, I think he's up there with I think he's up there with Erlen Haaland, you know, since April as, as as the top Premier League scorer. So, you know, Wilson not getting much of a chance. Which, which one would Barnes suit, do you think? Which style would suit Barnes the best? I think Wilson is the kind of forward that Barnes is used to. And some of that's down to the fact that he's been playing with Vardy. And although I wouldn't absolutely compare Wilson and Vardy, the Mm. point is that Vardy lost a little bit of his pace. So Barnes was encouraged to kind of interchange with Vardy when in a central area and be the one that burst beyond Vardy dynamically. So 
that I think works quite well with Callum Wilson. Vardy at Leicester, when he used his pace, went out wide. And when Vardy went out wide, Barnes came central. If Vardy was central, he wasn't necessarily doing as much running. He was holding up the ball and then waiting for a Barnes or a Madison to burst beyond him. And I think that Wilson falls into that category. I think that Alexander Isaac is perhaps looking for, obviously it's a bit of everything, but perhaps looking for slightly more interchange um, with others. Um, and then he wants to get in the box. And if he's in the box, then your Almiron or your Barnes are, are not only intricately passing it around the edge of the area with him, but they're feeding him. And of course, Barnes can do that. But I think with Wilson, you, you'll see a lot more directness between those two on the edge of the area. And I think that Wilson will sort of draw people in deeper areas and then allow Barnes and Almiron to use their pace. So uh, the balance between them is fine. I, I don't think it's a case of one or the other benefits him. I think they're just ever so slightly different kinds of profiles and ages um, you have to look at what Barnes was used to last season and how he was able to excel at Leicester. So fractionally, I would say that Barnes and Wilson might be a better pairing than Barnes and Isaac. But uh, what I would say is that Isaac is the best in that central position for Newcastle, in my opinion, this season. So Barnes is just going to have to get used to that. Mm, a lot of people saying Bruno is not performing to the same kind of standards as he did last season. Obviously, he had a little uh, exchange with the supporters uh, Twitter account as well, which I'm sure you've seen. Mm. Do, you think, do you think Bruno's suffering a little bit just from the the, the increase in midfield? Because with, with the change of personnel equals a change of formation. We've brought Tonali in. He's he starting Tonali. Um, do you think it's just trying to find that magic recipe between him, Joe Linton and Bruno? Or do we have to bring Sean Longstaff back in? Or is Elliot Anderson going to get a chance? We've got a bit of a conundrum in mm. the midfield. And this is a big test uh, for Eddie Howe. Not only has he got to try and get the right forward in place, but the supply line's got to be right. We've already talked Gordon and 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 Barnes, but that 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 midfield three is interesting as well. Yeah, very interesting. I think that it's a bit harsh to judge Bruno, especially in the last two games, because Newcastle were so disappointing against Liverpool, and then obviously when you play Manchester City, it's a completely different kind of game, anyway. So. I think it's very harsh to judge any footballer after three games and suddenly start panicking that they've lost their touch or they're not impacting. It's always going to be difficult for Bruno when there's a bit of change. And as you say, if you look at that Liverpool game, because Gordon got the nod and then Almiron and Isaac, Joe Linton drops deeper. And I think we spoke about this when I last came on, that Joe Linton can play in the midfield or in the front line. And... Bruno Joe Linton in a midfield is a little bit different than when Joe Linton is up ahead of him. So if you consider that Tonali isn't really a number six, he's a number eight, and he's obviously wearing the number eight at Newcastle. And uh, Joe Linton can play in a variety of different roles. But if you look at last season, he wanted to be in a more advanced position. So Bruno in the centre of midfield has to think a lot differently in a midfield that is Tonali Bruno, Joe Linton. If anything, I think he might function better in a midfield with Longstaff, Tonali himself, if Joe Linton was used in a more advanced position. So there's a bit of chemistry, but we're also only three games into the season. So uh, I think we have to judge Bruno and his form after 10 or 12 games and not 
just presume that something has changed in terms of his consistency and his form only three games into the season. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I think some of the uh, some of the fans out there do get a little bit ahead of themselves. And I think it was Steve McLaren, we've mentioned it on the show already this week, uh, said, give me 10 games. Well, I think, yeah, we've, we've got, to give, <laughs> yeah. got to give all teams 10 games. Got five minutes left um, because we're pre-recording this. And I know you, you've got to get off and do some uh, some stuff on the England uh, uh, the England announcement. Just looking at the transfer window then for Newcastle. Tonali in, Barnes in, Libramento in. Uh, Minte seems like ages ago, but he was uh, the very mm. first signing uh, in. Lewis Hall uh, in uh, as well from uh, from Chelsea on loan. Um, what, what have you made of the, What have you made of the transfer window ins for Newcastle? I think Newcastle have had a great window. Tenali was a very ambitious signing and one that maybe they didn't think was possible financially, and then suddenly did. And he's taken very quickly to the Premier League so far, much, by the way, like Bruno did when he first joined, and Botman as well. That's a very underrated skill. When you sign a player, don't just look at the profile. One of the first indications as to whether a recruitment team is smart is can a player take quickly to the league? And Botman did it. Bruno did it. Tonali's done it. So this is very encouraging. Obviously, Joe Linton needed his time. Gordon's needed his time. But Isaac took to it. So is that a change in the recruitment? Because it does feel like there's a lot of Newcastle players like Joe Linton and Gordon that may be underwhelmed to begin with. But Mm. many of the recent ones have been excellent from day one. Trippier, excellent from day one. Botman, excellent from day one. I would even say Dan Byrne, excellent from day one. Bruno, excellent from day one. Tonali, excellent from day one. Isaac, excellent from day one. Go back a little bit further. It's never been the case. I've mentioned Joe Linton, Miguel Almiron as well. Took ages and needed last summer's preseason to really start clicking. So this is a very encouraging sign, I think, for Newcastle. Tonali is versatile. He can get box to box. I've already said he's kind of a number six meets a number eight, which is really strong from Newcastle's perspective. I think that Livramento will be a cracking signing. I've seen a lot of him. He's obviously had a horrible injury record. And when he gets fit and can learn from Kieran Trippier, he's a player with huge value. And the beauty of Trippier and technically Livramento as well is if needed, they can switch sides. Uh, With Lewis Hall, I think he's got a big future ahead of him and it'll be interesting to see how quickly he gets game time compared to Dan Byrne. And he was a Newcastle fan growing up as well. So that's a very strong signing in my opinion as well. And I think that, again, Newcastle have just been sensible. They've not got sucked into the market. They've not really brought in a name just for the sake of a name. They've balanced young signings with proven quality. They've bought for the present and the future and maybe most importantly they've not kind of rocked the boat and by rock the boat I mean when you get Champions League football and you go from fighting relegation to Champions League football it would be very easy for Newcastle to think great we've got relatively rich owners even within financial fair play let's suddenly go on a big crazy charge in a crazy big spending window and let's buy for the sake of buying because we want uh, Neymar or whoever. And they've not done that. They've brought smartly. But also look at the spine of the team. Nick Pope, still there. Trippier, still there. Cher and Botman, still there. Byrne has been starting at left back, still there. Same as last season. Joe Linton, Bruno, 
Almiron still starting. Isaac versus Wilson. Well, we knew that that was going to be a battle if they both want to play centrally from last season. And again, Anthony Gordon still there at the moment, even though Harvey Barnes has arrived. Elliot Anderson getting game time. Matt Target coming on and getting game time. Sean Longstaff coming on and getting game time. Dubravka still there as the number two goalkeeper. Jacob Murphy still part of the matchday squad. So there's a real reward for the momentum of last season and a respect for the squad that have got Newcastle Champions League football. And I think that's smart because sometimes you can make too many signings. Sometimes you can rock the chemistry. Sometimes you can rock the wage bill. And Newcastle have been sure to sign smart, but still make sure that at this stage anyway of the season, they're rewarding the guys that got them to this position. Great stuff. Quick prediction for the Brighton game. I think 2-2, I think Brighton had a really disappointing loss to West Ham and they'll be looking to respond, but I fancy Newcastle to get something out of the game. Great stuff, Ben, as always. Thanks very much. See you soon, mate. Take care. All the best, everyone. Take care. A big thanks to all our sponsors, Skips and Bins. You can find them at skipsandbins.com or telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website, skipsandbins.com. Easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection. Big thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sources Handmade in Cumbria. You can order them from their website, mrvickys.co.uk, or by telephoning 01768 A big thanks also to New Workwear. Uh, you can find them at newworkwear.com. They're an agile and dedicated workwear provider. Welcome back as well to United Travel. Uh, they are a UK coaches firm and they are based in uh, the Northeast. They've got 2024 tours and you can contact them on 01670 632 460 or mobile 0791 4174. Email info at travel.com. And they've got a website, which is unitedgrouptravel.com. There's no strangers on their tours, just people you haven't met yet. Big thanks to them for their sponsorship. Big thanks as well to Media Arts, and they supply all the video technology. If you want to become a member and get a cup, a pen, a membership card, and a scarf, then get your smartphone and put it over this QR code. It will take you straight to the membership pack. It's a £25 one-off fee. You can also go to NUFC Matters website and search membership pack to book today. If you want to help the channel, then subscribe to it by hitting the subscribe button. Hit the thumb up under the video to like the video and click share to share to your other social media. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. Don't forget, we help the food bank on this channel. If you want to do so virtually, go to nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk and make a donation today. The Alan Sheila raffle is back on. 150 tickets, £1 a ticket. Win a limited edition signed Alan Sheila ball. Enter the day at nufcmatters.com. Mm-hmm.